Well, again, it's good to uh, welcome you and see you here today at Freedom Church, uh, whether it's your first time with us or if you've been here since day one. I'm glad that you are here today. I always have a hard time judging this because, um, you know, we can walk in the door with our own yuck and then just project it onto everybody else. So it's easy to sort of misjudge what's happening in the room. But this is one of those days I have just sort of felt like some of us are, are trying to get past the yuck factor. You know what I'm talking about? You ever walk in on Sunday morning and it's like, whoo, we got a ways to go to get to Jesus. And uh, today has felt a little bit like that in the room. So I'm going to invite you. I know we just got through praying. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me. And uh, we just want to take a moment to still our hearts before him. We want to make sure that we don't let anything get in the way of us hearing from uh, the voice of, of God today through his spirit. And so I just want to invite you right now to uh, welcome the Spirit of Christ in this place and in your heart. Would you just pause to do that? And we just need to take a moment to clear the room. Would you just, uh, if you're a Christ follower, I want to invite you not just in your heart but with your lips. Would you just declare the Lordship of Jesus? Just say, Jesus, thank you that you are my Lord. And I welcome your work in my life. And now having done that, I just, I, I'm going to pray a prayer of covering over us. And as I'm doing that, I'm just going to invite you to quietly just take authority over the enemy in your life, in your family, and tell him to get out and go in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have freedom, freedom from sin and from the tyranny of, of the devil. And we take authority right now over every wicked spirit that would seek to come in this place or more importantly, attach itself to any person in this place. And we speak to those spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus and command you, you will be silent here today. We order you to leave these people, leave this place. You go now to where Jesus is telling you to go. Don't come back to these people, these families, or to this place. Father, we pray a covering over this room and the people on this campus that we would have sanctuary here and that really healthy ministry and kingdom work could happen here today. And Holy Spirit, we welcome your work and your voice here today. Would you speak freely and move freely among us? We pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said... Amen. Thank you. Now, today is the second Sunday of Advent, and uh, so that means we are going to really begin in earnest to dive into the Christmas story. And in doing so, we're going to be looking today and over the span of three Sundays at three messages of Christmas, three different key characters in the Christmas account, and, and the message that God declared through them that was relevant not just to that story, but to us today. And we're going to start at the place that the gospel writers started, and it's going to actually be the thing that precedes the Christmas story, and that is the very first message, the message of the forerunner. We're going to be talking today about Jesus' relative. We, we assume maybe he was a cousin by the name of John, and the message that was declared through him about Jesus. And, and this, we don't talk a lot about, at least in our tradition, we don't share a lot about John, don't preach a lot about John, and yet, uh, by the account of the gospel writers, he was such a central figure in this. Uh, so I'm going to invite you, if you will, to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. 
And we're going to be looking in uh, chapters 1 and 3, all four of the gospel writers. There's not much that all four have in common beyond telling the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. There aren't many things that get repeated all four times. John's account gets told by every one of them. He was such a key figure, they just they couldn't imagine setting up and telling the Jesus story without telling John's story and John's message. And so Luke, who was the lengthiest and most thorough uh, biographer here, he begins uh, in Luke chapter 1, We're, we'll pick up in verse 5, but he begins with the account about John where he says in verse 5, that in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well along in years. Uh, other translations will tell you they were both very old. Uh, to, you know, just setting the stage here, we're opening up and we're focused on uh, Zechariah, who is a very godly man. He and his wife, just a really godly couple. And uh, they're faithfully serving the Lord. But the biggest disappointment in their life, they have had no kids. Verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty... And he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, by the rolling of the dice, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now, remember, in, at this point in time, uh, worship at the temple didn't look anything like worship for us. Uh, all the... The worshipers gathered outside the temple because remember the temple is a little building and it's the, the holy place and only the priests ever go inside the temple. And so the people are gathered in all these concentric courtyards outside the temple. Zechariah is one of the priests who's on duty, but to even go into the front part of the temple was a high honor. And so they would cast lots to see who gets to go in and do that. Zechariah's number comes up, so he gets to go in and he's going to burn incense before the Lord while everybody's worshiping outside. In verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Well, there's a different thing that doesn't happen every day, even in the temple. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name... John. Everybody say John. Good name. To give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will never take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his birth. Man, what an extraordinary thing. I mean, we're kind of spoiled. Because we all, when we come to Christ, we all get the Holy Spirit at that point in time. But up to this point in history, only a very limited number of people have ever known what it was like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Gabriel, this is Gabriel talking, by the way, the same one that would announce Jesus' birth. And he said, this child is so special from before the time he's born. Even in your womb, he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, there's this little scene that's described just a little bit later by Luke that, that's just kind of cool. Where Mary has come after Jesus has been conceived. Mary comes to visit Elizabeth. And little tiny John, just tiny, tiny baby in the womb, already filled with the Holy Spirit, comes into the presence of Jesus the eternal, sinless Son of God. And when they get close to each other, John just starts having a Holy Ghost good time in the womb, just like, woo-woo, Jesus is in the house. I mean, literally, that's what's going on. That 
He's not just given spiritual talk to say, and the Holy Spirit will be upon him. No, he is filled with the Holy Spirit his entire life. He's going to be an extraordinary guy. Verse 16. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. That's what John's about. And he will go before the Lord. Verse 17 is so important. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And, and trust me, if you were a Jew, that verse would just be jumping off the page. Coming in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. This would immediately ring in their ears because these were the final words of the Old Testament. This was the prophecy of the one who would precede the Messiah. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And just to fill in the blanks on, on what happens next, we won't read through all of this, but Zechariah, who's excited to hear this news, but as an old man married to an old woman would tend to think, he's like, that's great, and you've just scared me to death, and you're an angel and all that, but how do I really know that this is going to happen? And the angel, you know, God's never thrilled whenever we doubt him on the stuff that he says. And the angel gives him a real straightforward response. He says, look, I'm Gabriel. I, I minister in the Lord's presence. He's the one that sent me to you. Y you can count on this happening. But since you're having a little, uh, a little struggle in your faith right now, let me give you a faith builder. What I've just told you will happen. And here's how you'll know it'll happen. You won't be able to speak again from this moment until your child is born. How's that for a faith builder? <laughs> and Zechariah would have responded, but he was mute at that point. From that moment forward... For the next nine and a half months, Zechariah can't speak a word. He goes out and he's trying to motion and express what's going on. And the people are like, um, you know, looks like he's got three syllables. You know, I mean, he can't get across to them what's happened. They, they realize he's seen a vision. Something big has happened, but they don't get it. He goes home. And sure enough, very soon thereafter, Elizabeth conceives a child. Carries this child for nine months, and the baby is born. And the next thing that we see is they're taking the child, John, when he's eight days old, as is the custom. They're taking him so that he can be circumcised and, and dedicated on that day. And it says they. We don't know who they are, but whoever, the, whether it's the family or the priest or whomever, it, it's on the eighth day that the child gets officially named. And so they say, well, the child should be named Zachariah, named for his father. And Elizabeth speaks up and says, no, he's to be named John. And they're like, well, that is, you know, women don't have any standing. A woman can't decide this. It, that's silly. There's nobody in your family named, uh, named John. Name him Zachariah. And Zachariah's motion. He's like, no, no, no. Bring me a tablet. So they bring him a tablet. And he writes, his name is to be John. And boom, in that moment, suddenly his tongue is loosed and he can speak. His name is John. Anytime... God gives somebody a name or God renames somebody, it's so significant. He is communicating a message and he is declaring something about the destiny of that person and the role of that person. I wish somebody had taught me this before I named my kids. We just went for names that sounded cool. We, we did. Half of you probably did, same, did the same thing. It's like, you know, Whitney Faith. That sounded good to us. Lindsay Catherine. Had no idea what those names meant. So we just stuck them on there. Names can have great meaning and actually impact how a person lives their life. John, we're going to get to what that name means in just a moment, was the name that he was supposed to carry. So John is born just months before Jesus. They're relatives. We don't know how well they knew each other growing up, but they certainly would have had some knowledge of each other. John is the one that has been sent by the Father 
to prepare the way for Jesus. And so some years later, we don't know exactly how long, but for Jesus, it's a 30-year wait that he lives in obscurity before he goes public. John is the one who's going to go public first. And so sometime during his 20s, John goes public with his ministry. And so we're going to pick up in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and we're jumping forward in time to the point where John is grown and he's going to begin to, to publicly preach and minister And I'm just going to say this as an aside. When we read the first two verses of of Luke chapter 3, it's the stuff that you normally run through and go, yeah, yeah, whatever. The first two verses are a great reminder that when we read this account, when we read the scriptures, this is not some old fable. This is not just some generalized concept or some myth. Luke is the most carefully researched historian of the ancient world, bar none. He opens chapter 3 by saying, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip the Tetrarch of Aturea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius was the Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Okay, Luke, we get the general idea. It was kind of approximately... No, there wasn't approximately anything. Luke is so specific... At this exact time, it's like we, we learn a lot when we read Luke. Very detailed account of what's going on. At that point in time, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. And he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, it's easy for us to run through that and go, yeah, baptism, repentance for sins. Yeah, we're real familiar with that. Sure you are, because you're born in the New Testament church. 2,000 years ago... Telling a bunch of Jews that they need to be baptized and repent of their sins? Woo! You're going to stir the crowd up right there. What do you mean we need to repent? We are the sons and daughters of Abraham. Don't tell us we need to repent and be baptized. We don't get baptized. What do you mean be baptized? We get right with God by obeying the law and going to the temple and offering sacrifices. And John is saying, no, you better change your way of thinking. You better change how you live your life. You need your sins forgiven. Being the sons and daughters of Abraham is not enough. And, and it goes on to say in verse 4, As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, A voice, and this is speaking of John, A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. Every valley will be filled in and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. This is just a a way of describing in picture form what John has come to do. The Messiah is about to come and usher in the kingdom of God on earth. And before that happens, the role of John is to make a smooth path for the world to be ready, for at least the Jewish world, to receive this message that's going to go forth through them. Verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. Now let me clarify here. Matthew fills in for us that John has been preaching a message. We don't know the details of that message for quite some time. But on this particular day, the religious leaders from Jerusalem and all the surrounding area, they have all converged on the scene. If you'll picture all of these self-righteous men with their, all of their phylacteries and their flowing robes, and they've come to, to see who is this, this young buck that's now acting like he's preaching with authority. And now John's message becomes the message of a fiery prophet in verse 7. You brood of vipers, quite literally, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
produce fruit, fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is an unsettling message. He's saying, you better understand, you super spiritual giants, that God is not judging you based on who your great, great, great granddaddy was, or on the beauty of your robe, or what's wrapped on your arm and your forehead. He looks at you like a bunch of trees who better bear the right kind of fruit. And if you don't, he's going to take his axe and he's going to chop you down. And you better look out because the axe is already in place and he's ready to swing. That's a pretty in-your-face message, isn't it? I don't think that would play well on television. That is exactly what John had to say. And in response to that, and he, he wasn't just preaching mad, he was preaching a spirit-filled, spirit-inspired and led message. And in response to that, the common people asked this, what should we do then? And John answered, I want you to pay close attention, three times the same question is going to be asked by different people, what should we do? And John gives very specific answers. What should we do then? John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. And now the tax collectors chime in. And they are among the Jewish crowd. They are the lowest of the low, the dirtiest dogs. The tax collectors came to be baptized. And teacher, they asked, what should we do? They know they've got more ground to make up than anybody, at least in their minds. And he says to them, don't collect any more then you are required to. And then some soldiers ask him. Now bear in mind, it's like he's working his way down the line to the people considered lower and lower. He went from just sort of the general average Jew to the despicable tax collectors. And now Gentile Roman soldiers. This is the occupying enemy. I mean, these are the most despised. And they, it's amazing that they're even there and they're responding and they say, what should we do? And to them, he says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Luke goes on to say, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ, that is the Messiah, the one they've all been waiting for for so many years. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. So goes the ministry of the forerunner. Now, John would preach like this and cause a tremendous stir in Israel that really did draw many people back to God, back to a faith that was real and that would really prepare their hearts for what was yet to come. And after he had preached like this for a season, Herod became so ticked at John because John was just one of those, it didn't matter who he offended, he was going to speak the truth. And he began to speak directly to some of the things that Herod had done. Herod had taken his own brother's wife as his, as his wife and had done many other just utterly wicked things. And John would just call them out. You never speak ill of a king. John wasn't afraid to. And in response to this, Herod locked, Jesus, locked John up and eventually had John's head chopped off. Well, John's message 
up to that point in time. And by the way, John getting locked up was the starting gun for Jesus' ministry. That meant the, the work of the forerunner was done. Jesus would go public, and he did immediately thereafter. But the message of John, the ministry of, of John, could probably be summed up pretty well by simply saying this. Prepare yourself. God is about to do something new and big. The message of John was a call Get ready. Look at your neighbor. I want you to declare right now to your neighbor, get ready. God's about to do something big. Okay, I love you, but that was weak. Let's try it again. There you go. That's getting warmer. John said it with a little more gusto than we could muster today, but that was his message Get ready. Wake up. The status quo is not going to cut it. You better repent. You better change how you think. You better change how you live. Because you've got to be ready for what God is about to do. Because what God is about to do is either going to be great news or terrible news, depending on the preparedness of your heart. By the way, that's the message for today. Get ready. God is wanting to do something new and big. He is wanting to do a fresh work. I'm so sure of this. He is speaking it to so many people. So many of, of his prophets and people who really listen for his voice in this region are so clear that God is communicating the same word right now in 2015. Get ready because the wind of the Spirit is stirring and he is about to do something new. But you must prepare your heart for what God's about to do. Because you see, the people who responded to John's message. For them, Jesus' ministry was good news. And for those who weren't ready, the ministry of Jesus only put them in a worse place and drove them further from what God wanted. Well, there are three things that I want to say to you about John's ministry. And then there are three real specific applications that I want to share with you. The, the three things that I'll mention concerning his ministry is first just to understand that Jesus' ministry could not begin until John's work of preparation was finished. I said the gospel writers could not tell the Jesus story without telling the John story. And it's because... Elijah played such a central role in the prophetic words about the coming of the Messiah. I mean, you understand that for hundreds of years, the people of God have just been longing for the coming of the anointed one, the promised one, because life was rough. I mean, you think about the worst time that you've ever had in your life, and I want to tell you, for most of us, that doesn't come anywhere close to the typical day in the life of the Jewish people. I mean, they were living in lean, mean times, and they longed for the Deliverer, the Promised One, to come. Generation after generation had been looking and wishing. And they, if you go back and read all of the more than 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah, it's so difficult to construct all of these pieces into one clear picture of exactly who he's going to be, and what he's going to do. I mean, it's going to be very positive. You read passages like the opening of Isaiah 61 that Jesus declared in Luke 4, and you realize it's going to be good news for the poor. It's going to be freedom for those in bondage. It's going to be a, a season of favor. But in terms of how do, you, how do you recognize this guy when he's coming, it's very confusing. And so what the people have zeroed in on is the final promise of the Old Testament. If you were to turn back a few pages to the last paragraph of the last book, which 
the Old Testament isn't all laid out chronologically, but the beginning and the end are the beginning and the end. Genesis chronologically is first, and Malachi chronologically is last. It's in about it's about 400 years before Jesus. And the final word of the final book says that before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, before Jesus comes, I'm going to send to you first my prophet Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers toward their sons and the hearts of the sons toward their fathers. Final prophecy. Well, the Jewish people just zeroed in on that like a a laser beam and and said, okay, that's how we'll know. Right before the Messiah comes, we're going to know because Elijah is going to show up. Elijah is like one of the three biggest figures of the Old Testament. He is the greatest prophet ever in the Old Testament. I mean, if ever anybody was going to show up full of the Spirit of God and power, it was Elijah. I mean, this is the guy. You bring on 850 of the biggest ugliest prophets of a pagan god and a wicked queen and i'll call down fire from heaven that's elijah okay you're with me on that you know the the message that elijah is coming again is like go god we're going to kick somebody's tails today when elijah comes we'll run those romans out so they're they're waiting for the messiah but they're looking for elijah and and this actually still consumed the jews through jesus ministry Uh, it's still on their minds today by the way i mean You've heard of the Elijah chair? Today, when Jews who do not embrace Jesus as Messiah, when they gather for Passover, you know they always put an extra chair at the, at the Seder Supper. When they gather for Passover, the extra chair is for Elijah. They don't recognize that the Messiah has come, so they're still watching for Elijah, the one who's going to show up, and it just, they symbolically leave him a chair saying, maybe tonight, maybe tonight's the night that Elijah's going to show up, and he'll have the dinner with us, and we'll know the Messiah is about to be here. So now you understand why it's a big deal that when Gabriel showed up, and he said, hey, God's heard your prayer, Zechariah, and he's about to give you and Elizabeth a son... And that son is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he will be the one that will turn the hearts of the fathers toward their children. Oh, rest assured, Zechariah didn't miss that. This is the promised one. It's not literally Elijah reincarnate. That's the hang-up that the Jews had. They thought that Elijah was literally coming back from the dead. That wasn't the point God was making. He was saying, you remember Elijah. Well, you're going to get an Elijah just before the Messiah. And just so we're clear that we're not like misinterpreting this, the disciples were still trying to figure this out. In the middle of Jesus' ministry, they're watching all the miracles and they're talking among themselves. And it's like, he, he looks and acts like the Messiah, but... Where was Elijah? We missed that. And Jesus just told them directly. He said, look, John the Baptist, this was Jesus' words to describe John. He said, there's never been a man born of a woman greater than John. That's pretty tall praise from the Son of God. And he said, you know, just to be clear, he was the Elijah who was to come. He he was the one that was promised. So it was a big, big deal for them to understand. This is the guy. There's no need to keep waiting. He is the one. He's the forerunner that was to come and prepare the way. So what did he do when he prepared the way? Well, here was his message of get ready. In Matthew 3, uh, Matthew sums up some of John's preaching. He says, in those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what he's saying. Understand, the kingdom of God, it hasn't come to earth, but it's about to come. 
Jesus, when his ministry goes public, he is going to be kicking open a doorway between heaven and earth. The kingdom of God is about to arrive. And he says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater, that I'm not worthy to even be his slave and carry his sandals. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And with that being his core message, he preached over and over and over, calling the Jewish people, not because God loves Jews more than anybody else, but because God had singularly chose the Jewish nation to be the conduit through which he would then, through Christ, share the good news with and bless the whole world. That was always God's plan. When he first announced his covenant to, to Abram back in the beginning of Genesis 12, he was saying, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. And so now through John, the final work of preparation is taking place because the Jewish people have gotten totally off course. God had spent centuries trying to get the Jewish people centered in on what it means to be a community of faith and to know and worship and follow the one true God. And when it came time for the great mystery of God, the secret plan of God of redeeming the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus, when it was time to unleash that... The people weren't ready. After all these centuries of God giving them His Word, giving them the law, speaking through the prophets, they'd gotten so far off center. Their faith had become centered around a group of religious elitists who had added to the Word of God hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations that just made it oppressive to be a part of their faith. And John was the one sent by God to call the Jewish people to get back on center as to what it meant to know and worship and serve the one true living God. And so that's why his message always started with, Repent! Change how you think. Change how you live. This is not a life of faith. You're not following God. You're following the rules of men. And you're going to have to change how you think and live if you're going to experience the kingdom of God. And oh, by the way, the kingdom of God is at hand. You see now why his message and ministry was so important. And so Jesus, oh, he's ready. He's waiting. He's awaiting the the starting gun. And for 30 years, Jesus lives in the shadows. And John's in the spotlight. And when Jesus is 30 years old, he ticks off Herod. John ticks off Herod. He gets thrown in prison. And with that announcement, Jesus realizes the, the trailer is over. It's time for the main feature. The, the previews are finished. It's time for the main event. And it says in, Mark, uh, in Matthew 4 that from that point forward, Jesus stepped out and Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. With John being locked up, Jesus shows up in the synagogue and he opens the Isaiah 61 scroll and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to declare freedom for the captives, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and today in your presence. These words are fulfilled. It has begun. With John's ministry being finished, Jesus launches. Now, it's really interesting to consider why John's ministry was so important because Jesus' ministry 
had to be so brief. Have you ever just paused to consider that Jesus got 33 and a half years on earth, thereabouts, and of that, we know almost nothing of the first 30 years. How odd is that? He lived that much in the shadows. His ministry was three and a half years. That's the, I mean, we just, we get a teeny tiny glimpse of his birth, one snapshot as a 12-year-old, and the rest of it is about a three and a half year span because that was his whole ministry on earth. You ever stop to consider why the most significant human being on the planet, why he only lived in the spotlight for three and a half years? I have an opinion about that. I I believe, and and I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, that it is because Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection, all combined, brought to a culmination all that hell and the kingdom of darkness could possibly muster to thwart that and to kill the God-man. But it also brought in all of the desperate needs and expectations of an oppressed world, and particularly an oppressed nation of Jews, which meant that this thing couldn't last long. That his ministry could not possibly go on for 10 or 20 years because, for starters, it took an amazing thing by the hand of God to just keep Jesus alive for 30 years while he lived in obscurity. Because the enemy knows that Jesus' arrival is horrible news for him in the kingdom of darkness. He tries to kill Jesus from the time that he's born. And when Jesus ever goes public, if you go through the Gospels and watch for this, there are multiple attempts on Jesus' life. Satan does everything he can to kill Jesus. And it takes a real concerted effort by the Father to simply keep Jesus protected and alive all the way to the cross. Just for three and a half years. On the other hand, an even bigger push, a bigger surge, was the Jewish people. They were so desperate. They so longed for the Messiah to come and make life better for them and to set them free. And so every time Jesus would do something significant, what's the first thing that he would say? You know the answer to this. When Jesus would perform a great miracle, he'd raise the dead, he'd heal somebody, he'd do the impossible, and he would immediately say, what? Don't tell anybody. Shh. Don't tell anybody what I just did. Doesn't that always seem weird when you read that? Like, Jesus, are you trying to be a big secret? No, he's not trying to be a big secret. He wants the whole world to know what he did. He just needs a little bit of time to finish what he came to do before the whole world finds out. Because every time he would do anything, nobody could keep quiet. It's like, you're not going to believe this. This guy raises the dead. He heals the sick. He drives out demons. Lives are changed forever. And you won't believe how he preaches. Nobody goes to sleep. It's that good. Well, he's always saying, don't tell anybody, because he's trying to hold in check this movement where they're going to forcibly make him the king. That's why he's constantly having to escape the crowds. You can appreciate how the press of the crowds and the opposition of the enemy meant that this is going to be a really, really short time of ministry, and so it's critical that somebody go ahead of him before he launches To declare the word of the Lord and call people back to get on center and to be prepared for the message of the Messiah. So John's role is so central. The second thing we'll say about John, just very simply, is his name was a big part of the message. You know, the whole deal of his name has got to be John. God is declaring through his name what this ministry is about. And his name meant Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh has shown favor. Yahweh being the, the name of the one true God. We, we, we don't use that name much anymore. The Jewish people didn't use it because they considered it too holy to say aloud. So they would insert Adonai, Lord, Master. And then we've done this weird thing where we've taken Adonai and Yahweh and we put them together and created Jehovah out of that. But 
whatever name you want to use, the one true God. He has shown favor. He is being gracious that, that the ministry of John and ultimately the ministry of Jesus is an expression of God's favor. That Jesus came in the world, as John would say, not to condemn the world, but so that the world through Jesus would be saved. Boy, if the church could ever just get back on center about this. That it is not our mission to go stamp out every bad person and every, every bad thing that they do, but instead of being the voice of condemnation, to reclaim the message of salvation. That God has chosen to show favor and kindness. When Jesus stood and made that declaration in Luke 4, this is the year of the Lord's favor. Not the year that the, Lord's got, that the Lord has ticked off with you. It's God wanting to show you favor. But how you respond dictates whether or not you experience the favor of the Lord. I had a friend the other day, just he pointed out something about parenting, but then the application to just Christian life is so profound. He said, you know, the problem for us is we want all the blessings of obedience without having to obey. Isn't that the truth? And he said it of himself. He said, I want that. I want all the blessings of obedience without having to fool with obeying. And he said, you know, as parents, American parents, we're notorious for that because he said, you know, this is a friend who works with really, really troubled teens. And he said, it's amazing how much of the time I'll go into the homes to talk to the parents. And he said, you know, I get to go into the rooms of these kids that are just acting out horribly. And he's like, they own every gadget, gizmo, every, every wonderful thing that a teenager would love to have that you can imagine. And they're living like the devil. And he said, you know, they're getting all of the blessings of obedience without having to obey. He said, it's like giving a dog a treat every time it pees on the carpet, you know, and then expecting him not to pee on the carpet. I know, I'm chasing a rabbit, but let me chase for a minute here. You ever stop to think about that? Giving, giving your kids all the blessings of obedience without requiring them to obey. And he says, that's the life that we, that we want, and it's very true. We want the favor of the Lord without having to do anything in response. John declared, God is expressing his favor. His grace and His kindness. But coupled with that was a message of you've got to prepare. You've got to repent. There's some obedience that has to come for you to get the blessing and the favor that God is declaring through this ministry. The third thing is just that. That John's message of preparation was one of repentance and kingdom living. I want to take just a couple of minutes and unpack the three things that when you get down to, okay, so what did God send John to say and to do in preparation for Jesus? Well, it was this call to repentance, to be prepared to take part in kingdom life. But then when the people asked a, a great question, as he's standing and speaking in general terms about you better repent, you better turn to God. And the people are just over and over saying, but what does that mean? Tell us what we need to do. Don't just speak in religious riddles. Tell us what to do differently. Three times they ask the question, and he gives three concise answers. These three answers are just as on point today as they were 2,000 years ago. Let's consider for a moment the three things that real repentance, really turning to God and kingdom living, what they mean for us today and what they meant then. The first time, just some of the people in the crowd ask, what should we do? And he says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. The first 
message is clearly just give generously to those in need. It's not complicated. Always choose to be generous. This is the message of Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous teaching of Jesus, Jesus really hammered this point. He said, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. And he says, by the way, when people borrow, don't ask for anything back. And in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And then he says something that I really want you to chew on today and beyond today. Hear this as as God just speaking to you today. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. And if you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Because even pagans do that. Again, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wandering a little bit afield. But I just want to tell you what just keeps coming to mind every time I read that passage. It is the stark contrast of what it means to be a follower of Christ versus a follower of Allah. Because the world right now is staring at these two and trying to figure out which one is for real. Which one is legit. They both have the world's attention. And there are a bunch of egg-headed ignoramuses out there who want to say it's all the same faith. And people like that ought to have a keeper or a straitjacket. Because if you think Islam and Christianity have the same message, you have not read the books. The message of Islam is a message of judgment and an angry God. And you better get your thinking in alignment with how we think because if you don't submit to what we believe, we will wipe you out. That's the message of Islam. The message of Jesus is love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. Don't just be kind to those who are kind to you. Give to anyone in need. Don't just love the people who love you and who are like you. Could two messages be any more different and any more opposite than those two? And here's the rub. American Christians, in my experience, struggle immensely with the teachings of Matthew 5. The teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Think about how we live our lives. We earned what we have and we hold on to it because we worked hard to get it. We believe what we believe. And it's like the longer we're at this, the more we sound a little bit like the other side that they better believe what we believe. And if they don't convert, they're a threat. We may just need to bomb them off the planet. I'm not fixing to get into a political message. But, but we ought to consider what the ethic of Christianity really is. Jesus said, the way that the world will know that you're my disciples is by your love. And John said, the way that you express love is if you... And he's speaking to poor people, by the way. He says, if you've got two shirts and you see somebody who's in need, you give him one of your shirts. 
And if you see somebody who's hungry, you feed them. And I'm not going to give us the easy out. Because I know it's really easy for us to go, I don't remember bumping into anybody that looked hungry this week. In fact, you look around at most of us, we look well fed. We sure do. But guess what? We live in a global community today. We live in a world today where people who lived 2,000 years ago, they probably give an account to God for the very few people that they came in contact with. I'm afraid we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for what we did in response to the needs of the world. Because every one of us here has access to feeding children and families on all the populated continents of the planet. We have an opportunity to impact those who are poor, those who are in need, all the time. There are a variety of ministries that do this well. So yes, we have an obligation to to live this out here and now. We certainly have opportunities to do that. And there's no season of the year that we ought to be more alert to those opportunities. But we've always got global opportunities to make sure that that the poor have what they need. You know, Jesus said, share your food with those who are hungry. If he were here today, I'm pretty sure that he would expand that to say, and make sure that those who are poor and have no clean water get clean water because we have the capacity to do that. And the church is able and in many places is doing that. One well at a time is making sure that those in poverty aren't dying of preventable diseases. I mean, just so many things that we can do for the poor. John said, if you want to be right with God and live the kingdom life, you have got to learn to be generous. The second question that he's asked is the same question he's asked by the tax collectors. And in response to that, he says, don't collect any more than you're required to. These people made their living at the expense of their fellow countrymen because they were the law-enabled tax collectors to, you know, if Caesar got whatever percent, say 10%, well, they could tax at a 20 or 30 or 40% rate and the the Roman soldiers would enforce that. So it was just up to the local tax collector to say, Jeff, uh, you know, you look like you had a pretty good year here, so your tax rate for this year is 40%. Caesar's going to get 10%. I'll hold the other 30. I'm going to be a fat cat at your expense. They would do this to the poor. They made a difficult life almost unbearable. John's message for them is real simple. Stop. Stop doing that. Stop taking away from your fellow countrymen. We could say the core of that message is always value people more than you value money. And, and it's easy to say, well, I value people more than money. I mean, who in the room, if I said, who here values money above people? Nobody's going to raise your hands, right? But you know what the test of that is, don't you? How many people have you helped with your money lately? Because if the answer is, well, not very many, then it's pretty good sense that we value money more than people because we encounter people in need all the time. Hebrews 13 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's one of the greatest challenges of living in the Western culture, isn't it? To keep your life free from the love of money when it is probably the most epidemic disease in our culture. We love money and stuff. 1 Timothy 6 Paul says to Timothy, how to instruct the church, tell them to use their money to do good, that they should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. And by doing this, they will store up their treasures as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. That in giving to meet the needs of others, you experience true life. This is how you value people more than money. You use your money 
to help other people. And then the final ones are the soldiers who ask the question, what should we do? And he says back, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And it, it may not be real obvious to you, okay, what's the connection? Picture the days of, of the mafia, you know, protecting local uh, store owners in Chicago, where it's like, yeah, you, you pay me X amount of dollars, and I'll make sure your business doesn't burn down at my own hands. That's extortion. Roman soldiers had the same kind of authority. I mean, they've got the weapons, they've got the might, they can tell you what to pay. Either because we're going to hurt you or else uh, we'll just spread the word that you're not loyal to, to Caesar. That you're taking part in a rebellious movement and we all know you're going to get locked up for that. So you better cough up some money and I won't spread that message. John said to these guys who weren't Jews, you, you're going to have to cut that out. You're going to have to learn to be content with what you have. And stop taking advantage of the weak. We could say that the core message here is is a message of of always being careful to protect the weak and the vulnerable. Which is a fundamental core message of the Christian faith. James sums it up in James 1.27 by saying, Religion that God our Father accepts. We ought to want to know what the second half of that statement is, shouldn't we? When we've all seen expressions of, of religion that make us sick... It's like, what's the kind of religion that God really likes? Here's the kind of religion God likes that he considers pure and faultless. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. John's message is pretty practical, isn't it? You see, this message is so tied to the ministry of Jesus because it is putting a face on the core message that Jesus would deliver. What's the core message of Jesus, by the way? He said he can sum it all up in two statements. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. In fact, this is how you love God tangibly. By loving and caring for people. John said, I'll put a face on that for you. Share with those who are in need. Never take advantage of other people. Always value people above money. There's how you practically live out the values of the kingdom. It's worth knowing That everywhere we have seen revival at any point in the world over the last 20 centuries, this lifestyle has accompanied true revival. Everywhere the Spirit of God has done a a transforming work in communities and nations, there has been a tremendous outpouring of compassion and provision for the poor, for those who are oppressed and mistreated. These have always been the values of the kingdom. Now, when I think about our struggle to, to live out these values, I'm reminded of a story that I read recently. It's a true story uh, about a missionary named Eunice who went to uh, minister to the uh, Mexican Indians. It's the, not Aztec, but Maztec Indians of southwest Mexico. She fell in love with these people, but it was in spite of some of the challenges that they presented. And what she described when she came back was really quite quite striking and I think instructive for us. Because what she discovered when she got there was that these people would almost always refuse to greet you if they met you on the street. They would refuse to smile at you or to speak a kind word or even just a, a pleasant greeting. She discovered beyond that that they would almost always refuse 
to share knowledge or to teach anything to you or to one another. And when she really started digging around trying to understand this culture and why these people behaved this way, that they, were, that they never shared happiness, they never shared joy, they, they, they never shared uh, open forms of courtesy or even exchanged ideas, learning and knowledge. And it's like, well, what's driving this? And what she discovered is this was a culture that absolutely believed in the concept of limited good. Everybody say limited good. Let me tell you about what the concept of limited good is. They believed that there is a set, finite amount of any form of good in the world, in a community, and in a person's life. And that once you had expended any portion of that, you could never get it back. They believed that happiness was a form of good which was finite in quantity. And so if you were happy... And you smiled at someone else and greeted them happily. You just gave away some of your happiness and you can never get it back. And you only got so much happiness for a lifetime. So you can't express your happiness to anyone else or you're going to run out really quickly and you'll be sad for the rest of your life. They believed that knowledge was the same way. That they would have believed that what I'm doing today would leave me at the end of the day knowing nothing. Because I have stood up here and for nearly an hour been seeking to teach. And they believe you only start with so much knowledge. And every time you teach something to someone else, you decrease your knowledge. And one day, if you keep sharing ideas with other people, you're going to run out and you'll be an utter fool. Every form of good is limited. It's finite. So you better keep what you have and never give it away. Now we hear that and and across the board around the room, we're all kind of chuckling and shaking our heads going, How sad. How pitiful that they would believe in this principle of limited good because we understand that the exact opposite is true, don't we? That when you have some, even if it's just a little bit of joy, and if you choose, this may have been your story this morning, that you came in and only had a little bit of joy, but you chose to smile and hug a neck and shake a hand and warmly greet someone, what did you find? Was your joy run out because you did that? No, the opposite happens, doesn't it? That as you give away love, as you give away the little bit of joy that you have, it grows instead of of being expended, right? And we all understand that. We understand that when you stand and teach, you don't diminish your knowledge by doing that, that you're actually growing, you're still processing and learning even while you're teaching. You're not diminishing what you have by what you give, you're expanding that. And we all go, yeah, we get that, those poor dumb Indians. And yet when it comes to the matter of finances, the giving of our money and material possessions, we are the poor Dumb Americans who believe that there is a finite quantity, that there's only limited good that we can do. God, I only make this much. And my bills this month this month are this much. There's not much margin, God. And in fact, it's December, so I make this much, and I'm probably going to need to spend this much, God. You understand there's only limited resources, right? Resources have to be limited. And in God's economy, in the kingdom of God, God must be shaking His head and going, you're just like those poor Indians. You believe that you've only got this much. And if you give some away to help somebody else, then you've only got this much. And if you help these folks, then you're only going to have this much. And we're ultimately going to get to the point where we can't pay our bills and we're going to starve to death. It's going to be terrible. It'll be an awful Christmas, right? 
Because resources are finite. So we better hold on to what we have, right? And God's Word reminds us that in the kingdom of God, resources are just another form of good. They're like love and joy, goodness, learning. That the more you give away, you discover the more capacity you have for giving away. Because you can't give it all away. God said through His Word that He is the one who supplies seed to the sower so that the one who sows generously has more seed to sow than he ever had before. And the more you give away, and it feels like, well, I ought to be running out of resources. And God keeps saying, no, the one who gives, I continue to resupply. You can't run out of resources. We've got to learn this message. You cannot follow Christ and be greedy, period. If there's one thing you can't get away with, it's to be greedy and be a follower of Jesus. Because you see, ultimately, the heart of God is He's a giver. John was asked three times, how do we, how do we live the kingdom of God? And he, all three of his answers were economic. Go back and reread them. All three of them were tied to economics. You can't belong to the kingdom if you don't follow the king. And the king is a generous giver who cares for the poor. He is gracious. The message of John was a good news message. Get ready. Prepare yourself. God's about to do something great. But you're going to have to change some things. You're going to have to change how you think. You're going to have to change some things about how you live. And some of that change is going to mean giving away what you think you can't afford. And you'll be amazed to see the gracious hand of God. Remember the name of John. Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is about to show favor. But you're going to have to change from this to this. Would you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, we take great comfort and celebrate today the fact that you are gracious. You give what we don't deserve. You show favor where we haven't earned it. And even though... There are many times where your blessing requires our obedience. Thank you that your love isn't predicated on anything. Thank you that you have chosen to love us. That you've chosen to reach out to us. And I thank you that you are committed to changing our thinking and our living. Thank you for how John's message still speaks to us today. And I pray that by the voice of your spirit now, that you would show us specific ways and places that we can live this out today. I just want to ask you right now to to do a simple thing. Would you ask the Spirit of God in this moment of time to speak to you and to show you at least one place, one person, one situation where you can live out this kingdom principle today, that you can be generous, that you can show compassion. And let's put a time limit on this. It's December. Let's ask God for clarity where we could do something this month that would make a difference in somebody else's life. It's going to give you a moment to be still and listen. Father, we welcome the work of your Spirit who is constantly changing us from the inside and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing that. Would you take hearts that many times for us have become hardened or 
are just calloused to the needs of others. And would you make us sensitive? Would you teach us to care like you care and to see what you see? And would you teach us the joy of giving and caring for others? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.